Welcome to Football Uncovered, a podcast that delivers you the most weird and wonderful stories about the men and women in charge of the biggest clubs in the world. This series will bring you some truly bizarre and often unbelievable tales of the highs and lows from the people in control of the purse strings. My name is Will Brazier and along with Richard Johnson we are joined by our man in the know, Sporting Intelligence's Nick Harris. Today we turn our attention towards the Midlands, Aston Villa and my beloved Birmingham City to be precise, a tale of two owners. One was a hairdresser and the other was a doctor. No, it's not a murder mystery. This is Football Uncovered. But before we get into it, if you're listening to this, please leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and why not recommend it to a friend. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter at Sport and follow at Sporting Intel for Nick Harris. Nick, intro's out of the way. Good to see you again. And you. Are you well? I'm well and looking forward to this. Another escapade into football ownership. Rich, it was obviously your idea, so obviously we had to start with Blackburn because obviously that says a lot about you. But now we finally got to some juicy, meaty Midlands action. It does feel like we should do some sort of rating at the end of the season. Which, what, which one was which, the most salacious? Which club is the best and then which owner, yeah, is, is most crazy. Well, we're speaking about two today. Nick, should we start in Birmingham City to be precise? Because there is actually only one club in Birmingham, the other is actually in Aston. But Carson Young... A crazy character who you got to meet. But my first sort of inkling of him was when there was a rumoured takeover back in 2007. And he actually messed us about that season. Like a lot of these people who come in without very much public profile, we were never really sure whether he was going to have the money to do the deal, what his motivations were, where his money came from, who was behind him, if anyone else. And that summer, July 2007, it was sort of, is it going to happen is it not? And initially, he bought a slice of the club, just under 30% in that summer. But it was still unclear, really, who was behind him, who he was, and what he wanted, and what was going to happen. Well, from a fan's perspective then, what's the narrative? What's the sentiment? Well, so this is the only year I ever had a season ticket was 2007 so, and 2008. Sorry, we've, we've got to interrupt there. <laughs> you only had a season ticket for one year at Birmingham. Yeah. I had one for nine years at Blackburn, and you question how much of a fan I am. Well, Nick, what? make the final call. No, like Nick, Roman I, Emperor style. No, Who's the biggest fan? No, one because Rich comes from a very, very privileged background, um, and I could only get to the age of sixteen and work my ass off to afford that season ticket, which actually broke the piggy bank. I think you're both fans of your clubs. I grew up in Nottingham, supporting Southampton, and we actually had a season ticket at the Dell for a few years when I was younger. Oh. But I mean, it was a hundred and seventy mile each way. It's not about how many games you can get to depending where you live and there's a year yeah. I lived in Japan I got to four games <laughs> at the Dell from Japan I feel really bad about my situation now. Yeah, but no that was the only first season I had a season ticket so I was very excited and we started off okay I remember we signed the likes of Gary O'Connor who went to have a different career was that exciting? it was for us because he had a mohawk <laughs> which I remember at the time was, was absolutely brilliant but Steve Bruce was in charge and he'd been there for a good amount of time but there was a sort of sense of like in Bruce we trust must have felt like the good times could never end um, but obviously when the, the rumoured takeovers first started to happen uh, that's when Bruce had enough and left so Bruce leaves and in comes Mr McLeish. Yeah. But you're relegated that season, aren't you? You're one season as a season ticket holder. You're relegated. <laughs> so we're relegated on the final day of the season. We actually beat Blackburn Rovers 4-0 and still went down. Fabrice Mwamba scored a header. Um, everyone ran on the pitch. The police then formed a line from one side of the touchline to the other, cleared everyone off. 
Someone broke the crossbar and McLeish's car got egged. And I think I got Sebastian Larson's autograph. So in all in all, Christ, it's a sort of good and bad day. But uh, obviously we went down and then McLeish took us back up with Kevin Phillips scoring the goals. And then we did get back to the Premier League and sort of have a very good start, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, I think it's your duty to, to never have a season ticket again. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think the highlight was the last day. Uh, in that season, I actually had the worst game I ever went to because we lost 2-1 to Villa with a Gabriel Agbonahor last-minute winner. But then you went back up, you went straight back up 8-9, didn't you? Yeah, well, that's the, that's the th- interesting thing going through these notes as well. It was obviously there's 75%, 80% Carson Young is terrible, like failed promises. But we actually had our best ever season in the Premier League under Carson Young. Finishing ninth, yeah. Finishing ninth. We, we had Joe Hart and goal, like rock solid back four. Joe Hart, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah. We were, uh, absolute illustrious line of goalkeepers through Birmingham. Right. Um, and then, obviously, we did win the, the Carling Cup, now known as the Carabao Cup, greatest cup in the universe, um, but did get relegated. We were in Europe under Carson Young in the championship. Yeah. Will, this all sounds great, but I want to hear the bad stuff, the crazy stuff. You talk about Young as a successful era. I think the, the first thing that was sort of going back through the notes was before he actually took over, there was some sort of dodgy goings on around him, wasn't there, Nick? Well, yeah, I mean, he was an enigma, basically. We didn't know who he was or really where he came from. There was this idea that he was literally a hairdresser. It transpired <laughs> that he had, had actually owned a hair salon as part of a portfolio of his businesses quite a number of years before. But he'd owned local football clubs in Hong Kong. He had business associates, it turned out, sort of working in casinos. There was question marks over, was the money his money? We didn't know it at the time that he was buying Birmingham, but it later transpired that some of the money that he used to buy Birmingham was actually laundered money. So we're not doing any spoilers by telling people that he ended up in prison for money laundering, but the money that he did, some of the money used to buy Birmingham was laundered cash. He was being advised by a guy called Peter Panu, who was a former Hong Kong policeman turned barrister. Uh, Panu spent a lot of time in charge of the anti triad investigations. And he was uh, Young's day-to-day man at Birmingham. So there was a lot that we didn't know um, when he took over. Like you said, there was two sides to it. Winning a cup, two years in the Premier League, that's all positive. But as journalists, a lot of us were sort of wanting to, to get to Pano and just to, ask, to have the chance to ask him questions. And it took a long time to persuade him to actually do an interview. And as far as I remember, he only did one sit-down face-to-face interview while he was involved in in Birmingham, and that was with me. It took a long time to set up, but it happened on Easter Sunday, 2010. Peter Pano actually eventually persuaded him to do this piece because I was a journalist with The Independent at the time, but I was also writing for FC Business Magazine, which I'm sure all our listeners will be very familiar with, the trade title for the British football industry. And certainly for people within the industry, if, if you got on the cover of that, it would be like um, getting on the cover of Smash Hits if you're a pop star on the cover of 442 if you're an, you know, an up-and-coming footballer. So Peter Pan had persuaded Carson that to be the cover story on FC Business was absolutely the dog's what's-it. It's Easter Sunday 2010 and I've been invited to sit down with Carson Young finally and ask him these questions and find out what he was all about and what his plans were for Birmingham. And Nick, just sort of before we dive into that, like, why do you think he was so against conducting interviews or or having a bit of a public persona at that time? Was that to protect his enigma, his mystery? Or was it because maybe, yeah, his past was, was lurking with sort of dark dealings and practices? I think probably more the latter than, than the former. I don't think he, 
he didn't sort of set out to make himself into sort of some charismatic, enigmatic person. That wasn't the issue. I just think he found, when, when I actually sat down with him to ask him questions about his intentions and what he'd done and where his money came from and what his background was, his answers were, let's say, not wholly convincing at times. And some of the things that he was promising for Birmingham were certainly a bit outlandish. There'd been um, estimations in some sections of the media that he was worth 150 million quid. So I just, at one point in the interview, I just asked him straight out, right, are you stinking rich? You know, how much money have you got? You know, we needed to know, was he really a hairdresser? Even as we sat down to do the interview, there was an investment bank who brokered the deal called Seymour Pierce talking about legal action against him and Birmingham because he hadn't paid them £2.2 million commission for the takeover. So there was already sort of things rumbling in the background. And I guess... If he didn't have to face the press and sit down and talk about it, then then he didn't. So he was only, as I said, persuaded eventually once that season was going well and things looked positive. Just to set the scene even further, because obviously Carson Young takes over from Gold, Sullivan and Brady as well. So in my head, I don't know if it's like a bigger picture for you guys to look at, but it almost feels like he gets away with a little bit more because... Those guys were crazy. They were sort of wanted out of the club. But it's that age-old story of you don't know how good you've got it until they're gone, really. Yeah, and I think if you come in like him, making big promises, which he did, as we'll find out, certainly in this interview, then the fans, you know, if they think that their owner's got millions and millions of pounds and is going to spend it on good players and back the manager and that good times are ahead and that he's obviously from Hong Kong, he's Chinese, he's promising that he's going to make Birmingham the biggest club in China. It all sounds great. And like you say, that's a very good point, Will. Marked against what came before, which is, you know, Golden Sullivan, who by this point were not well liked. I guess fans are always going to hang on to that optimism, even if there are questions about um, how sustainable it is. Okay, so I think what's best for us to go next to learn about the man is to jump into your big interview with him. Do you want to uh, talk us through, uh, you know, sort of what what happened there? Because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so I get to the um, executive lounge. They've played Liverpool that day at home. And I'm told that there's a little room out the back where Carson is waiting for me. And I walk in and there's these two guys sitting at the table. There's Carson Young and Kenny Dalgleish, deep in conversation. Uh, Carson wants a selfie with Kenny. I have my digital camera with me. So uh, I I took a snap and promised to email it to Carson later. And then Peter Panu joined us because Carson spoke good English, well, reasonable English, but there were obviously going to be some some things that maybe were a bit nuanced. So Peter was there to sort of assist. And we spent a couple of hours, you know, asking him, uh, is he a hairdresser? What's the deal with Seymour Pierce? How much money have you got? Is it just you or are there other people behind you? Because you know, there had been some suggestions that he was perhaps a front person for casino operators or something. And he said, no, he was still very much in control. He said the Seymour Pierce thing was just, you know, nothing really it would get settled. He said he made his money from an assortment of different businesses, including share trading and owning a Hong Kong newspaper. He was in genial mood because Birmingham were ninth in the Premier League as we sat there. The Chinese media had said he had 150 million quid in the bank. So I asked him how much you're worth. And he just paused. And then he says, I'm rich enough to have a company that buys a football club for 81 million pounds and rich enough to buy a house in London, my second home. Just on that point, and I don't mean this to sound uh, crass, but, you know, a fortune of 150 million, I think if we look at this point of time and, uh, you know, only 10 years ago, but like you look back and you go 150 million, I wouldn't be buying a football club. When people are buying football clubs, they're generally uh, having a, a lot more cash than that. 
Well, I think if you were a sensible, rich person, the way you describe your wealth isn't by going, I could buy a football club and I have a house in London. Yeah. For me, that would be sort of red flags. But but also, <laughs> 150 million. And he never confirmed how much he had. And we don't know how much he had. But um, when he eventually went to prison, he went to prison for money laundering 70 million quid, put it like that. At that point then, when you're like kind of not convinced regarding you know his response and answer, which again does sound odd that you go yeah well i've got a second house so yeah of course i'm worth loads you know is this then sort of more arousing suspicions that maybe this he could be this front for yeah this casino or some of these other things he could be but we didn't know and we did all the relevant checks to to see if we could dig into it and ultimately if you don't have access to somebody's private bank accounts then you just literally can't tell what somebody's wealth is or where they've amassed it from you know he was saying he bought this football club for 81 million quid i mean to my mind as someone who does a lot on uh, football finance spending 81 million quid of your entire fortune of 150 million is is quite a lot of money given how expensive it is to to then run football clubs so you know i sort of skeptical about that but maybe will I'll, I'll run through a few of the other things that that he told me and that we ran in the interview and you can you can you just give me your feedback on what you think as a birmingham fan so number one he wanted to crack the asian market and make birmingham the biggest premier league club in china sitting ninth in the premier league at the time that was sort of a tangible goal really was there any steps made to do that did you sign any chinese players you know were you trying to I think there was rumours to be talks of it, but I don't know if anything actually came to fruition. Well, that brings me to point two, because he said they were going to sign the best Chinese talent and give them a platform, a Premier League platform at Birmingham. And he was also involved in a football reality TV show in Hong Kong, which would lead, he said, to the winners of that talent competition. Oh, you get kids to do keepy-uppies and whatever, and the best one would become a Birmingham City player. That seemed to be the thrust of it. The best international Chinese players and the best youth. What were your thoughts on that and what do you think, Neil? Um, I mean, you look back at recent successes, Amazon Prime, All or Nothing, Sunderland Till I Die, you think Carson Young's a bit of a visionary here, but in terms of actually bringing players from a talent show on, I actually spoke to one of the winners from, uh, what was it, Rich? Remember the one on Sky One? Um, he won, signed for Chelsea, but now he plays non-league football, so... There were lessons to be learnt there. What what I'm kind of thinking here is like, you know, Wayne Rooney's street striker. Yeah. Sort of maybe Kevin Phillips' street striker, the chi- you know, Chinese I, version. And I can tell by the tone of your voice there, you've been very dismissive of Kevin Phillips, one of the most prolific goal scorers in the Premier League, Rich. So just, just watch your tone there. All Could right. you give me a more BC list player from the time? Cameron Jerome's street striker. <laughs> Actually, looking at the next one of these, the more I look at them, the more you sort of think, well, you know, there there was a certain (laughs) plausibility to some of this stuff. Because he said, for example, his companies are in sectors from media to energy, water and property. He he wasn't telling me about the money laundering, to be fair, at this point. And he said that the Premier League is the ultimate international brand, i.e. for his businesses and whatever. Again, that sort of sounds quite sensible, doesn't it? He wants to use the, the leverage, the international brand of the Premier League and and help his businesses. Again, it sounds sensible, doesn't it? Then he said, I'm the first man from Asia, from mainland China, to get involved, i.e. in the Premier League ownership, and he was, and that will give me a head start marketing the club in Asia. So again, it sounds sensible and plausible, doesn't it? Then he confirms he was a hairdresser, but he was a hair salon owner, and he said it was 30 years ago, not recently. So again, he was trying to play down the idea that he was sort of tin pot. When it was... 
announced that a hairdresser from Hong Kong had bought Birmingham. That sounds tin pot. So he wanted to distance himself from that. It's amazing how much he got tarred with that brush. Like, Will, it's the end of the Brush, you... nice word. Yeah. <laughs> good morning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good that you really combed through the facts, Nick. Oh, yes. Oh. Um, but, Will, it's basically the only way in which you reference it. Yeah, but then I'm just <laughs> the thinking, we, we've just come from Gold and Sullivan, and one of those used to sell lots of different things in the sexy industry. Like what? Is it Ann Summers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. David Gold's daughter runs Ann Summers, yeah. Gold and Sullivan obviously were involved in pornography for a long time. I'll tell you what, a yeah. quick, quick, quick story about David Gold. I once <laughs> went to um, David Gold's house in Surrey. Uh, I needed to speak to him about some stuff I was doing for work. And he has got a golf course in his back garden and he's got a 19th green, which has got his helicopter on it. We're in the kitchen of his house having a cup of tea. And then he says, Nick, do you want to see my early porn mags? So I said, (laughs) yes. I said, yes, David, that'd be great, please. You know, to be fair to him, we were having a conversation about the fact that, you know, he'd he'd been maligned in some quarters and, and this idea that he was a pornographer uh, led to him sort of making the point we were prosecuted under the Obscenities Act, but in actual Got fact, you. do you want do you want me to show you what we were prosecuted <laughs> for? And it really was, oh my goodness, you know, but that was a different era. Anyway, from hairdressing and <laughs> pornography to the next point that he told me, Will, he said, everywhere I go in Hong Kong, people want to talk to me about Birmingham. Everywhere. He can't he can't <laughs> move in Hong Kong without someone coming up to him and asking him about Gary O'Connor. And he says the same is in China. Do you believe him? See, if this would have happened about eight or nine years later, because Birmingham's had a bad rap all my life, a terrible accent, until Peaky Blinders came out and swept the nation by storm. You say you're from Birmingham now, it's a completely different response. Again, visionary figure. And if he'd have known that BBC were going to be spending those big budgets on Peaky Blinders, I actually don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I I think that's a really good point. But... You know, in terms of if he did it now. Yeah. But I actually lived in China at this time. Right. I did. Lived in Ningbo. And you couldn't move for a blue shirt. And I'd never heard Birmingham mentioned once. No? Never. When was that, that, Rich? uh, 2008, 2009. Okay, so this was at the time. At the time. No Joe Hart jerseys knocking about? I I mean, well, obviously, you know, they they couldn't, uh, you couldn't move for them being produced in the in the counterfeit shops. No, that's absolute. Yeah, that's that's where we can call bullshit on on young here. Weren't the sort of five times life size cardboard cutouts of Birmingham City players at Hong Kong Airport for a while around the time? If there were, I'd have I'd have been straight. I never saw them. I'm trying to think who we had that. Yeah, Gary O'Connor. Sebastian Larson. It's tying into that point, though, to, on a serious point, is to say that, obviously, he's saying he's the one of the first Asian owners. Yeah. And he's sort of trying to build off the back of that success, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And that and that is, that's fine for him to, to say that, and it seemed like a legitimate point at the time. This is, I guess, what I'm trying to say, is he made these claims at the time, and although you had your suspicions about how lasting it was going to be and how rich he was and, and what his intentions were and what his motivations were and who else was with him... There was an air of plausibility to what he said. We'd had to check out what we could be checked out, but he he did sound plausible at the time. So previously, before the interview, he, he'd uh, talked about this £40 million war chest that, that actually transpired not to be. In the interview, he said he regretted saying it. And he said, I was in a catch-22 situation. Fans wanted to know who this Chinese guy was and what my commitment was. Had I not indicated my intention, people would have said, I'm reluctant. What do you make of that, Will? 
I mean, yeah, like you said, you've got to come in and make big promises. But I'm just looking at some of the signings that were made under his tenure and all the sort of the top tier talent that he signed actually did play. I'm not saying they played very well, but Roger Johnson, Scott Dan formed a formidable centre-back partnership. That's not out of the realms. Barry Ferguson um, did really well. Joe Hart, we got on loan. Uh, Christian Benitez, who was great, obviously no longer with us. Ben Foster as well, obviously. I mean, that was a fantastic signing. Curtis Davis. I think the one for me that I always bring up, which sort of is synonymous with this era, was the fact that we signed Nikola Zigic for £6 million. And I think, I don't know if you know anymore on this, Nick, he had a clause in his contract where he was on sixty grand a week and the last two years of his contract, he got a 5 or 10% raise each year. Yeah. So, so we were in the championship and he was on seventy-five grand, I think. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that was a lot of money then for yeah. a club that finished ninth in the Premier League. That's a big salary. Yeah, well, he, he was from Valencia, Nick. I so. remember yeah. being excited about Zigic because of football manager. He scored, didn't he, in the cup win? Yeah, no, that's the biggest bet I've ever won. I had £5 on Birmingham to win 2-1. Zigic to score first at 120-1. to Oh, my goodness. Crikey. But yeah, the £40 million was sort of like exciting for for little old Birmingham but yeah we just never I mean yeah I think the most expensive signing is Nikola Zigic yeah and the last thing that he told me was I'm here for the very long term my dream for Birmingham is to do better than we've done before if we try our best and improve from where we've been in the past we'll be happy I want to push them up the table but not set unrealistic targets again looking back at that now that is actually quite tempered, isn't it? Apart from the bit saying I'm here for the very long term and then getting arrested shortly afterwards. Yeah, I mean, that's never <laughs> ideal. But on field performance, we finished ninth the season before and then the next season we get relegated. But win the so league... what's the problem? Why are you always having to go with the hairdresser? <laughs> I just can't, I like... can't work it out. And I think ultimately that is Birmingham City. I will never be able to work Birmingham City out. There's no normality to it. Here's a question for you as a Birmingham fan, but it would be applicable to any fan who supports a club... You know, like I support Southampton and, and you know, you're not going to win the Premier League every season or potentially forever. Would you take a League Cup win and relegation or would you rather have not won the League Cup that season and stayed in the Premier League? I'd rather take the League Cup win because... Of course, that, I agree. I think I, I didn't get to go, sadly, that day, but like those memories and like... Especially for the, like my granddad got to go. He'd, he'd had a season ticket for forty years. The last final he got to go to was the Bert Troutman final. Right. When obviously when we lost and he, the goalie had a broken neck. Yeah. So he got to go and just those memories for those people. We finished third in the Europa League group in the Championship when we were one point off getting to the last sixteen of Europe. That is the thing as a, as a fan of a club where you just kind of don't really do anything. Those big moments are big yeah i can't celebrate the fact that we finished ninth and like that's great yeah, but it's yeah, not yeah. like that's tangible is it ben foster was recently on peter crouch podcast just to give a bit of insight into carson young and his interaction with the players and they said they never met him apart from the day of the final of carlin cup final he apparently came in white gloves obviously very lavishly dressed right um but the players could tell he was quite nervous and they were quite nervous they were going into a, a big final and he didn't speak for a while and he just looked around the room clenched his fists and just said win and then just walked out and yes. what do we do that day guys you won yeah we yeah. won so sometimes it's best to say less yeah so I think yeah. we spoke a lot about the good times Nick but then it did unroll very fast I guess we look at this episode through the prism of what happened next and how it ended so it was plausible to believe what he was saying even though we had our reservations but within a couple of months of, of winning that cup at the end of June 2011, Carson Young was arrested in Hong Kong in relation to money laundering. 
all sorts of documents seized from his home and from the offices of the parent company of the club. He later went on trial in May 2013 and in March 2014 was found guilty of money laundering £70 million. He was sentenced to six years in prison due out this year. And it was discovered that a small chunk of the laundered money had in fact been used towards the pot of cash that was used to buy Birmingham. Wow. The court was told that he'd lied about how he'd made his money and he was described by the judge in the case as not a witness of truth. And as he was sent down, it emerged that he had two previous criminal convictions, which probably the EFL should have assessed in their fit and proper person assessments before he was given the green light. They were from 2004 and 2010, so one while he was actually in charge. He basically failed to declare interest in certain businesses, um, which were not big deals in themselves, and they'd been dealt with by the local Hong Kong courts. But again, evidence of wrongdoing were let go as insignificant by the EFL. And it then transpired that the takeover had been partly financed by a casino magnate, in fact, from Macau. And the money that Young was found to have laundered via his businesses did, in fact, include cash from other Macau owners who were linked to triads. So suddenly it all looks, in retrospect, not as great as it did on the day you lifted the cup. That's all kind of unravelled quite quickly. So essentially, like... He bought Birmingham because he basically was making a ton of money from money laundering that was all intertwined with gangster casino owners. And then these other businesses were all um, just fronts. And was the intention then to sort of use Birmingham as an additional asset for money laundering? Like, could that have been an idea? There's just for for the lawyers listening, there's absolutely no suggestion that (laughs) that would be the case. No, not at all. I I think that once once he'd actually put the pot of money together, I'm assuming his intentions were, as he stated in his interview with me, that he really thought that he could use his status as a Chinese businessman within China to promote Birmingham. And uh, and, and if, if Birmingham had had a, a long run in the Premier League with all the wealth that brings, then he could potentially build Birmingham into a sustainable Premier League club that could be marketed around the world. So it was more sort of, again, like the the takeover of Birmingham was ego-driven and maybe to legitimise him as a businessman. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that he might have made Birmingham into a force was obviously something he presumably really believed in. But obviously none of us knew at the time what else was going on in his background that would end up with him in prison. But even then, the amount of money that to, to make Birmingham the force that he would have wanted, I mean, we spoke about his ultimate uh, transparency of wealth being a house in London and a football club. But he would have needed 10, 20 times the amount to... Yeah, he would have have needed a lot of money. Because remember, around this time, late noughties, that's exactly when Cheikh Mansour is buying Manchester City, you know, in 2008, and spending whatever he spent now, 1.5 billion quid or whatever. A bit like Abramovich in 2003, spending you know, hundreds of millions in each summer for the first few years, as Mansour did very early in his reign. So he was never going to compete with the resources that he had, let alone obviously Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham, even Everton. So it was a mixed bag, shall we say, but probably not ideal that you get relegated and then get sent to prison for money laundering. Because the crazy thing is as well, he was sort of... Not directly in charge, but sort of that ownership group was there until 2016, wasn't it? Exactly. Peter Pano stayed there and, and he personally divested himself as if of his interests in the structure of the ownership uh, so he could sort of separate himself. And he had to, obviously, once he'd been arrested and stuff, 
for football league purposes. But yeah, they stayed till 2016, and um, and you you'll know more than me about exactly what's gone in since then. Yeah, I mean, even when Young went to prison, we had the. I don't know if it's famous outside of Birmingham, but when we stayed up on the last day, scoring two goals in the last 10 minutes with Lee Clark running down the touchline away at Bolton. We've been in the championship for 11 years this season and four of those times we've stayed up on the last day of the season. More recently with the new ownership, obviously, because the new ownership came in in 2016. We were sixth, the highest position we'd ever been since the first season back. Um, And what do you do? You get rid of your manager, Gary Rowett. Oh God, still getting on about that. You always that's when we were friends then, wasn't it? You remember you crying. The managers that they've had since that that period, since Rower. I mean, you forget that Gianfranco Zola was the manager of Birmingham and then Harry Redknapp. Gianfranco Zola was that bad, but that much of a nice person because we were going to go down that year. Basically, Rower had played to the strength of the players, which was kick it long, work really hard. Zola tried to do 3-5-2 and play football with it and we were three games a week from relegated they wouldn't sack him and Zola had to resign himself because he knew it was going one way Is that the season when it was Birmingham stayed up and Blackburn went down Rich? Yeah it is we watched it together I can't remember the twists and turns because obviously I don't follow either club but my memory is that throughout the afternoon different clubs were going down We both won Yeah It was another team's result I can't remember who now that actually meant Blackburn went down, but we both won. But yeah, there was a time when you were going down and then it was like, I think about 70th minute it went, oh, Rovers are going down. Yeah, but that's the thing, even to go back to that. So we get taken over in 2016, which is obviously really exciting because we've now got an owner who's not in prison. There's constant mistakes and mistakes that they keep making. And Redknapp came in and bought 12 players in that one transfer window. So it's not a sort of fairy tale ending either. So you're saying... Bring back Carson Young, bring back the good times. (laughs) Talking of the good times in that part of the country, shall we move on to Aston Villa? I mean, all my friends are Villa fans, so we're moving on to Dr Tony Gia. Is he a doctor? He's an academic doctor. He's not a medical doctor. Got you. Obviously, Aston Villa, one of the longest standing clubs in the Premiership, one of the biggest teams in the Premier League. Whoa, well. I think you could say that, can yeah. you? Absolutely. One of, the, one of the most successful football clubs in the history of English football. And during my lifetime, especially my teenage years, they were absolutely smashing it, weren't they, under Martin O'Neill? We'll remember that team of like Ashley Young, Stillian Petrov, John Carew, Gabby Ogbonghor, Gareth Barry. But then something changed. It started to go badly. Uh, Randy Lerner wanted to sell and he wanted to sell to the doctor yeah so what happened like you said uh, Villa were, were finishing six fairly consistently and Randy Lerner was always fairly knowledgeable that the more money you spent on wages as long as you spend it well the higher you'll get in the table but really the ceiling for Randy's finances was about six he was never going to have enough money to take that next big leap to go and sort of join the likes of Manchester United and I think there was a bit of friction maybe between Randy and Martin O'Neill and that Martin O'Neill felt that he could just push on and maybe get towards the Champions League but ultimately Randy Lerner realised that he just didn't have the wherewithal to, to risk spending that money and that's if he even had the money. So Tony Gia comes along in, in 2016 really out of nowhere. I didn't know anything about him. I don't think most Villa fans had ever heard of him. Again, it, a bit like the Carson Young situation, there was really not very much known about him. But he bought the club. He ended up buying the club from Randy Lerner for, for £76 million. In terms of 
again, as a journalist looking at the rumours that this guy's coming along and he's a millionaire or a billionaire and you start digging into his background and a bit like Carson Young, you do what you can do. You you do your checks, you look at company records, you look at university background. On this occasion, I happen to know somebody, um, have a contact, um, who knew Tony Gia. So um, I was introduced to him in terms of, you know, I was given his phone number and, and, and this is before the takeover happened. And I said, look, can I speak to the guy? I want to ask him some questions. People aren't sure that he's got the money. There's all sorts of rumours that he's not really who he says he is. Or, And so I was put in touch with him. So I did a bit of research that he was from his background in China, that he'd studied at Harvard, that he'd, he had a degree in landscape design, that he was an entrepreneur, an investor. He had various companies. So, so very little could be confirmed about him. But he was quite happy to speak to me. And so I did a, a big... A FaceTime interview initially with him. You're very upfront about like all this, and when you do these interviews, kind of like, uh, listen, I'm not sure that these you're being questioned. Are these things legitimate? And you're just very clear on that in terms of what you want to achieve. Absolutely. I mean, you just have to be very straight with people. You say, look, I'm very sorry, but I've I've never heard of you. I've spoken to some contacts and people in China. You you don't appear to be well known in business circles there. And there's various things that have been reported about you, which I'd like to ask you about and just say, look, you know, you've not been involved in English football before. But believe me, there are all sorts of people who turn up in English football claiming all sorts of things. And there's so many crooks and con men and people who don't have the money and scammers. So you have to forgive me for asking these questions. But, you know, Aston Villa fans will want to know who you are and what you're about. And so would you mind, you know helping me find out more about you. And, and he was absolutely very open about stuff to the point that he gave me names and contact details of people that I could check out. He suggested different things I could do to, to confirm, for example, that he'd studied at Harvard. I, that turned out to be true. It was claimed that he owned a hugely successful design company in Boston. He certainly had owned a company in Boston. I couldn't confirm that it was massively successful because you, you're not obliged to share financial records in the same way in America that you are here. He said he'd spent an exchange trip to Oxford University in 1998-99 when he first watched Villa. I confirmed that he had been on the exchange trip to Oxford in that year. And I'd actually found, going through some university sports reporting, I actually found a lineup where he played in a football match, you know, so that was true. I couldn't confirm, obviously, that he'd watched Villa for the first time, but there was no reason to disbelieve him. He had been in England at the time. His story was that he owned this company called the Recon Group, which was a conglomerate in China operating in IT, health, clean energy, city planning, sport, tourism and leisure. Uh, the detail was lacking and the corroboration in China was only partial. He did have businesses there. And to a certain extent, you could confirm that from bits and pieces that were stock market listed, you could see that he certainly had tens of millions of pounds. But again, it's very opaque, trying to dig into who owns what in China and how much they're worth. But he was quite happy to talk about all of this. So I did this first interview with him on FaceTime in May, middle of May 2016, you know, against this backdrop that he was a broke fantasist, basically. Unknown to anyone at this point, during the interview, I actually asked Tony Gia to prove his wealth to me because um, he, he told me that he was worth more than a billion dollars. And and what he did is uh, the day after the interview, he sent me an email which um, included a bank statement uh, from what he said was one of his accounts showing more than, more than £300 million pounds in it. And, wow. and I confirmed it was genuine. It's the vintage photocopied bank statement. Get it across. 
That's a football uncovered classic, that yeah. is. Except it was confirmed as genuine and was later used as proof of funding when the EFL gave the takeover. So around the same time, I'd also had a call from another journalist, actually, who knew Roberto Di Matteo, asking me if Tony Gia was kosher because Di Matteo was being sounded out about the Villa job. So I told this guy, this journalist, that as far as I could tell, Gia seemed to be good for the money and... Um, and obviously Di Matteo did in fact end up as the Villa manager, albeit short-lived. Anyway, in his first interview, he told me he was worth more than a billion dollars. He showed me proof that he had hundreds of millions, but I don't know about the billions. He said he would give me bank statements, which he did. There was all sorts of confusion about him because, you know, the opaqueness of, of China, and I couldn't, I had problems verifying, for example, his age for various reasons. He had been to Harvard. He had started a company in Boston. One of his university professors was a business partner there, and he confirmed various aspects uh, of, of Tony Gia's background. Uh, he said he'd relocated his Boston company to eastern China, and a complex series of company registration documents did show that this was also true. So he was basically stacking up. And he told me that Recon had fingers in all sorts of pies, but um, it wasn't all stock listed, and so I couldn't confirm stuff. And he told me, I'd rather keep a low profile. There's been much more attention than I'd expect or could predict. Um, I knew people would pay attention, but not this much. So my first article, it was cautious, it was slightly sceptical, but it did say that I'd independently verified a lot of the key claims that he'd made, and he did appear to have the money. Was that sort of your gut feeling coming away from that as well? It was like, obviously, your suspicions were aroused, but maybe you were sort of kosher. Yeah, I think I had suspicions, and I asked him questions. Generally, when you, you've got dodgy people and you ask them simple questions like, where did you go to university, or can you show me proof of this, that, or the other, dodgy people will just be evasive and not provide proof. I mean, uh, the killer detail for me was that he provided a bank statement which I independently verified as genuine showing that he had more than 300 million quid in an account and ultimately if some of the other stuff can't be stood up if he's good for the money and he ends up convincing the EFL that he's good for the money and the money actually ends up going into Randy Lerner's bank account and he becomes the owner then that's it you know he did in fact have the money and he bought the club and he didn't do what he wanted to do but he was kosher I mean he told me at the time that his long-term plans involved building a football museum at Villa Park and a, a, a Aston Villa theme park somewhere nearby so that to attract football tourists from China. Again, it turns out to be pie in the sky. At the time, it sounds slightly ludicrous, but you know we do live in an age of football tourism these days. I think the numbers are something like 700,000 attendees at Premier League matches each season out of about 14 million are foreign people who have travelled specifically to attend a football match from overseas. And Scandinavia is huge, but also India, China, uh, mainland Europe. There are tens of thousands of people coming to this country, to Britain, to England, to watch Premier League matches. And so the idea that, yeah. that you would purposely have a football museum and an Aston Villa theme park to try and attract this new breed of international tourists. It's outlandish, but it's not that outlandish. When I used to work at United and yeah, every week, you know, you'd get people coming from all over the place just to go to the museum and the stadium tour, never mind then to try and get tickets to watch matches as well. Absolutely. Um, At one point, United had a a string of red cafes, didn't they, in China? They didn't work out in the end. Actually, once I was was in uh, East Stand in the office working away, this number just started calling me on my phone and it was a Chinese number. I was like, 
uh, what's going on? This is like really weird. Like not expecting anyone to call me from China. And um, it was a guy from one of the Manchester United fan clubs in Shanghai. And he said, Richard, I'm outside. I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, he said, I'm outside Manchester United, outside Old Trafford. And he'd come from Old Trafford. I'd never met him before. Sort of, um, he was just part of the fan club, but he got my number off someone in the fan club. He was outside Old Trafford reception and he was on his honeymoon. And he presented me with a tea set um, and a Starbucks China mug, which I still have to this day. Um, just one example of obviously the draw of uh, not only just me to uh, Chinese fans, but also Manchester United. I think the trick Tony Gio really missed was hiring Rich. I think just to set the scene as well, where Aston Villa are at the time, obviously you've mentioned Di Matteo's coming in, but it's sort of like a very tumultuous time for Aston Villa, isn't it? They've got the down in the championship. They've yeah. got players on huge wages yeah. from like, you, you, they've just had the Jolie and Lescott saga with their phone in the pocket. Absolutely. The fans aren't on board. The club's a mess and probably Tony is not really helping with the situation, is he? He'd basically set himself a target. He wanted to get them up that season, 16-17 season. And I think he basically put his eggs in one basket. He wasn't saying this, but I think privately he felt that they had a really good chance to get straight back up. And had they gone straight back up, I think things might have been very different. But um, the point was, between my first interview and the takeover, there was all these rumours, people just writing, it's not going to happen, he hasn't got the money. And I stayed in touch with him through that month. I spoke to him a few times, asked him how things were going with the takeover. And he said, look, it'll be fine. He said, in fact, on the day that the takeover... um, is going to happen like the day we're going to transfer the funds you come to Villa Park you sit with me in the boardroom while we wait for the money to be transferred and then as soon as it's formally done I'll do an interview with you as the owner of Aston Villa from you know an executive box overlooking the pitch and then we can you know we can do a piece so that's what happened I went to Villa Park um, for about midday that day I met Tony and his legal team and various people in the boardroom we sat around for three or four hours waiting for the banks in New York to open uh, confirm the money had landed in Randy Lerner's account at one point a nervous lawyer sort of came in and whispered something in Tony's ear and said a bit of hitch and everyone got a bit nervous and I was thinking oh my god is this a point you know he's gonna say you know I'm actually Carson Young's cousin and I'm about as, you know. (laughs) But it was just a technicality. And about half an hour later, we were in an executive box overlooking the pitch doing his first interview as Aston Villa owner. And given all the scepticism about him and as someone who'd, inverted commas, investigated him and written he would do the deal and had the cash, there was an element of, okay, good, we got this right, it actually happened. But I still really don't know much about him, even now, years later, or, or the ultimate source of his funding or all sorts of other things. Any, but in the interview, um, and again, this was a classic, a classic for, for owners who take over Premier League clubs. He said, okay, good, now it's time to make Aston Villa the biggest football club in the world. That is, that's uh, tick one for football dodgy football owner bingo. That's one step further yeah. than Birmingham as well, isn't it? And yeah, then and true. then obviously a bit of pathos because he follows that up with the first priority is to get Villa back into the Premier League. <laughs> and then after that, back into the top five clubs in England and then into the top ten in Europe. But actually I want more than that. I want it to be the best known football club in the world. And I believe the name Villa can become the best known First, because it can become a big club in China and also my plan involves other clubs and they will also have Villa's names. So maybe, Will, you can tell me what you think of his promises. We went through it with Carson Young. His grand plan was for a sports sector 
of his business empire, which would involve buying clubs or stakes in clubs in India, Spain, the USA and Australia. He expected that to happen over the next few years and would plan to add another club in 2016. I think that's perfectly plausible, isn't it? Especially what we've seen with the with the City Group. Obviously, they've executed it, but uh, Red Bull doing the same. Red Bull doing the same. Um, I think it's plausible, but obviously the doctor didn't come good, did he? He had a clear idea. He said of which players will be leaving Villa Park and of transfer targets for the summer. Um, he said four or five first team players will be going, and perhaps more arriving. Um, and Di Matteo would have total control of the decisions. And I think actually, uh, you know, he did he did give him some money and there was some transfer dealings, albeit maybe not the massive ones that were expected. He said he'd scrutinised the club's accounts in detail and he knew there'd be a, a financial loss of tens of millions of pounds because obviously in the championship. But he said he planned for that and 30 million was available for Di Matteo. And he said he was aware some fans might have doubts about his credentials but he says, I've been doubted before in my career. I don't care. I just get on with my business. And he said that he'd, uh, to, to clear the fit and proper hurdle, he'd actually showed the Football League proof of 600 million quid. In fairness, right, with all of this, with Carson Young, very mysterious, you know, very coy, th- something's not clear. Like, I get it here with Shear because he's sort of, again, he's been tried to be as transparent or, or there's some bits a bit opaque as you describe it Nick but he's been tried to be transparent with handing over these documents that sort of prove yeah. elements of his wealth much more wealth than Carson Young had these sort of answers here or, or these things statements that he's giving again seem to be bound in elements of realism obviously he's setting out ambition for where he wants the club to go as we hear about regularly but he's aware that he's going to lose a lot of money he knows that people are doubting him sort of that that awareness is like quite uncommon I think in some of these takeovers where it's not just like pure stubbornness and ego but it seems like it got a little bit more capacity to take on board negativity and criticism yeah and and ultimately he paid Lerner 52 million quid for Villa he cleared the club's overdraft 24 and a half million quid he had the money he did run that football club for two years it, it didn't go to plan because they didn't get back up into the Premier League you know that first season so you know it's it's just journalistically these things are interesting exercises because you know it's not necessarily very easy to corroborate everything you try your best sometimes they work out sometimes they don't and um, obviously what happened next it didn't particularly work out for him he had problems moving cash out of china into the united kingdom and that hit villa they missed a deadline in 2018 for a tax bill and the club was faced with a winding up order and the possibility of going out of business it all looked quite dodgy for a while it didn't transpire that way because actually Tony Gia found rich owners to take things on from him but um, the CEO Keith Wyness formerly of Everton was suspended by Tony Gia for talking about the possibility of going into administration and then they had a massive falling out and then Tony Gia sort of went AWOL and it wasn't certain what was going to happen but in actual fact he was just keeping the lowest of profiles desperately trying to find somebody to take the club off his hands because he didn't want to obviously have the embarrassment of anything bad happening and he did ultimately find owners to come in that's where his story ended so this kind of feels like the end here kind of feels like the Leeds flavor where it was like they shot for the stars missed and then it all unravels from that point because you're like you're the the money that you've leveraged and, and it hasn't come off just unpeels everything and you're in big trouble yeah except in Villa's case it didn't really unravel because he found owners to take over from him and then subsequently they're back in the Premier League after those years but there was a point wasn't there because I I remember four weeks of unrivaled joy and ecstasy where uh, Aston Villa were nearly at the point of facing a a winding up order yeah 
But they were really on the tipping point, weren't they? Well, it did look, yeah, they were being threatened with winding up order over an unpaid tax bill, and it looked really, really dire. And the fans, sort of, who were sceptical before the takeover, and then sort of realised, okay, things seem to be going okay, and, you know, they believed in Gia, and then it got to the point where things went badly. Um, it, they lost all the money that you predicted they were going to lose. They were in a financial hole. Suddenly you know, the fans are back on his back saying you're a fraud and a con man and, you know, and football fans are fickle. And had he got them promoted in that first season back to the Premier League and they stayed there since and whatever, he'd still be in charge and everything would be different. It's sort of fine margins, but but it is also, there's there's an opacity to these stories that is uh, happens time and time again. I mean, the, 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 the postscript to, to the Tony Gia sort of element is... A year ago, just over a year ago from now, late 2019, so more than a year after he'd exited the picture, a court in Beijing issued an arrest warrant for him, saying mm-hmm. there's um, um, he was accused of breach of contract and non-payment of various business debts. And I think uh, it was the last thing he ever tweeted. Um, he was or, big on Twitter, wasn't or, he, yeah, when he was the owner? Well, one of the last things he tweeted was just saying that, you know, that was false. The allegations against him were false, fabricated by a business rival. And uh, to this, I don't know. I don't know where where Tony is now or what he's doing. Whether I think he's probably back in China, but mm. you know, it's a strange postscript. But there's nothing. You know, it's not like Carson Young. He didn't end up being convicted of of anything. Or yeah, any, he's not a con man. He's not a no. Criminal, he's just. No. I mean, I'm still in two minds about. You know, he obviously had an amount, a significant amount of money at his disposal, and whether that was his money or whether it was part of money, you know, he was a front man for somebody bigger. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of theories. Contacts in China aren't sure um, what the deal was, but um, but I think that, that is often the case. Do you think he almost took too much on? Because we've said now with the new Villa owners, obviously they got Christian Perslow in, they got a director of football yeah. in, but obviously he was coming into an absolute mess with players on like 100 grand a week. Yeah fan base against them and he was almost trying to solve it with a, a museum and a theme park yeah I mean obviously he, he had Keith there who was an experienced football executive but he ultimately I mean he had he had so many different plans and I don't necessarily think that he was spending that much time hands-on at Villa he was kind of coming in and out I remember one day I spoke to him and he'd just come back from Los Angeles he'd said where and I don't doubt that he'd been to Los Angeles but he told me that he was um he was in negotiations to buy one of the Hollywood film studios, like buy a Hollywood film studio. Uh, and and that never transpired. But I think he he had all sorts of plans for his wider business interests as well as Villa. So maybe maybe he just thought it would be more straightforward than it turned out to be. Just, just quickly, and I don't know if you have any insight on it, but how did they go about finding the new owners? Because... Like I said to you off offline, like Birmingham were searching for new owners for years and years, and in the space of four weeks, they found two of the richest guys in the world to take over their club. You mean how did Tony Gia find? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, my hunch is that uh, the guy who introduced him to the club and the opportunity, you know, is somebody who knows lots and lots of very interesting and quite rich people, some of them anonymous, some of them oligarchs and well-known household names. I, I, I don't know, but I suspect him or someone like him 
uh, made the introduction to Tony Gia. There's, there's lots of people like this whose names will never, just are not known. Then they sort of, I was going to say they operate in the shadows, but that makes them sound like there's something sinister about them. But, but just like bankers who, through the course of decades of knowing, mixing in those sort of circles, know lots of very rich people. That that's just what happens. Well, we've covered the two biggest clubs in the Midlands. What's your take out? Two two slightly different tales, but ultimately similar results. Well, it's yeah, it's two different tales, but I mean, they could have gone either way, couldn't they? And then me and Rich used to do a championship podcast, and I always remember famously Villa and Birmingham were both in the championship, and then obviously Birmingham got Dean Smith in. Um, they overtook us, and one club's gone one way, and, and now you look at Villa and say they're on the verge of being an established sort of Premier League team going back to the era of Martin O'Neill and Birmingham have got a new set of owners in that have promised the world and delivered nothing there's also a quirk there in that part of the world that you've got four football clubs that have or are owned by Chinese businessmen I mean obviously Villa were under uh, Tony Gia and um, Carson Young obviously at at Birmingham but you've got bigger success stories arguably at um, West Brom Mm. probably more than anywhere Wolves owned Mm. by Fosun so, you know, folk, bottom of the pile. And Fosun really are absolutely massive fingers in all sorts of pies. I didn't realise until I was looking into this, but they actually own shares in Cirque du Soleil and Club Med. They own 90% of Club Med brand. And they also own Xingtao Brewery, 20%, nearly 20% of Xingtao Brewery, Ooh. as well as Wolves. I think we wrap it up by saying that of those four clubs, Birmingham at the bottom of the pile, the future doesn't look very bright at all. We've got owners in that probably don't know what they're doing and are not learning the lessons from this very podcast. Um, and Aston Villa have gone the other way. Just, just no hope, really, is there, guys? So there's always hope. There, there is always hope. Doesn't feel like it now, though. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for your wondrous tales, Rich. Did you enjoy a brief insight into the Midlands? Wonderful. Thank you, Nick, for your investigative uh, exploits as always. We shall wrap things up by saying if you have listened and have enjoyed it, get involved on iTunes by dropping us a rating and review. It helps us out enormously. Tell your friends about the podcast. Follow Sport and Intel for more amazing insight from Nick Harris and follow us on Sport. Nick, thank you very much. Thank you. Rich. Bye. See you.